0: Welcome to today's episode of the Grind Road to Success podcast, the place to be if you want to set yourself apart from the competition and learn what it takes to perform at your highest potential. I'm your host, Zach Krusic, and today we have the pleasure to sit down and talk with former elite athlete, Olympian, and performance coach, Tom Graham. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Tom. You're welcome. Pleased to be here. So let's dive right into it. Let's talk a bit about you know, your experience as an athlete, kind of what you went through um, and the lessons you learned along the way from, you know, youth levels to the professional levels um, and how you performed uh, throughout that.
1: Sure. Uh, thanks for uh, again for asking me. And uh, of course, you're affiliated with the, uh, the, the same baseball team as my youngest son. So it's a real pleasure to be here. I guess the first thing was the the role of parents. So my dad was important. Uh, We played ping pong in the basement when I was about eight to 12 years old, probably longer than that. And it took me about four years to beat the guy. Uh, So you learn perseverance in a situation like that. So I think no matter how good you are, how poor you are in activity as a parent, there's always room to play things with your kids. And uh, chances are you begin as a, as, a, as, a, as a better ping pong player, for example, than your kids might be. And so you bring them along. Um, we spent time in the backyard learning how to throw a curveball. So I was a, I was a left-handed pitcher when I was a runt. And uh, we spent time learning uh, a curveball. And I guess that qualifies as play. But I did it with my dad and we'd laugh and uh, and uh, and uh, at, at our mistakes and things. But eventually you learn how to throw a curveball and you walk around the corner and and um, do the same thing with your friends. So all those things qualify as play, but all those things also qualify as extras that that you can do as a kid um, outside the confines of a regularly scheduled practice. So those are important. Um, I played what whatever was in season so uh if you have ever listened to the hall of fame induction interview with john smoltz that was his main point if you're a kid play whatever's in season and then you'll come to a certain place in your life where you pick one of them or you pick two of them and you concentrate on those but uh but play all of them uh get involved and see what turns your crank I was, uh, I, I eventually got involved in, in baseball and volleyball. And there's, there's kind of a funny story about how I, I ended up prioritizing baseball, or pardon me, volleyball over baseball. Um, we uh, played in the Comox Valley once, a touring San Francisco baseball team called the Siskiy u And these guys were really good. And for some reason, I had all of my stuff that day. I started against them, and uh, I I shut them out. And um, there were a couple of scouts in the stands in my hometown at that time. And uh, they said, we'd like to keep an eye on you at, at your island championships. We'll look at you again. And uh, what ended up happening was that I was also ID'd. Uh, by a guy named Vic Lindell uh, with with BC Volleyball. He'd come up to my hometown, done an identification camp, and I made the mistake of asking him a couple of questions, so he thought I had a good attitude. So he invited me to um, 160-boy identification camp or selection camp, which was the first selection camp on the trajectory to the 1975, (coughs) dated myself there, Canada Games. Uh, so, um, I went over there and, uh, I'll tell you about that in a few minutes, cause it was part of the developmental trajectory, but I didn't pitch for the seven days that I was over there at the provincial volleyball camp. And, uh, you can guess what the predictable result was when I showed up at, uh, at islands about four days after that, I got shelled and the, the, the scouts went away. And so volleyball effectively uh, torpedoed what might have been a very promising baseball career. <laughs> what kind of pitcher. <laughs> but that's, that's sometimes the way your options get eliminated. And sometimes the reason you go in the direction that you do. So mm-hmm. what ended up happening was uh, after that camp admission, uh, I, I, I'd gone into the camp and uh, they put me in the top group for some reason that I really didn't understand. And uh, I didn't belong there um every night when we played our scrimmages i was basically the main reason why my team lost and so after a week of this i went back to comox bc my hometown at the time with my tail between my legs and now i had a decision to make Um, do i quit which would have been the easy thing to do at that point or do i do something about my miserable existence as a volleyball player and there are a couple of mission critical skills Uh, One was my vertical jump, which was pathetic. And uh, the other one was uh, a skill area called serve passing in volleyball, which was also atrocious. And so those became areas that I focused on because they needed the most work. And it was interesting. They gave us um, a provincial jump training program that was beautiful in its simplicity. Took about 25 minutes to do uh, every day. On the days you weren't doing the resistance work, you went out and jumped the centimeter card to find out if you could get that next realistic, challenging performance goal of, of the next centimeter up. Um, and so there was feedback every second day on how your, how your training was, was going. And, uh, one of the most startling results I've ever experienced in sport with, with respect to me anyway, was that in, um, In six months that 20 centimeter card was gone, Uh, I had eight inches or 20 centimeters on my vertical jump that I didn't have when I started. So that kind of sold me on the extras doing the extras and taking areas that have room for improvement and then tackling those because you're going to get better fastest than if you continue to work on your strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing was surf passing and that was simply serving a ball against a ball against a wall. You know, it's filled with air it bounces back. You lock up, you pass a ball to, uh, to a spot on the wall, that corresponds with a set of setters hands and you can get 10,000 reps a year in that nobody else is doing. And so vertical jump surf passing became things I worked on to try and reel in people that were better than me at that time and uh, it eventually resulted in in my being selected to that canada games team that won a gold medal in 75 um but uh i i the other thing that was interesting about that zach is that um those two areas were were mission critical weaknesses at the time i started tackling them at a, as a 16 or 17 year old Um, two and a half years later, I made an Olympic team. And in the words of my Olympic team coach, um, he said, the main reasons you, you, you made this team was one because of your, your attitude. Um, but two, because of your vertical jump and your serve passing. And of course, again, these were mission critical weaknesses at the time I tackled them two and a half years previous. So I guess there's a lesson in there somewhere for, for young kids, uh, kids coming up and uh you know after i uh after canada games i played a year of uh university ball and then uh in a in a surprise i went through a brutal national team camp and they selected me to the, the training squad and uh eventually i weaseled my way onto uh the 12-man uh team that, that participated in the 1976 olympics in montreal so that's, that's awesome. pretty much pretty much my story
0: That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us, Tom. I just want to take a second to backtrack a little bit. And I want to ask you, when you were going through that process, and those couple years that, you know, things weren't going your way, or, you know, you were maybe struggling relating with, you know, that uh, vertical you had and just trying to make the team, what was your mindset like, going through all of that? And how did you cope with, you know, facing those failures, challenges, or not getting the results you want? in the moment
1: well i can i can tap i can answer that um and i guess by 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 just citing a, a goal setting reason um we were fortunate because the the way the the coaches on our provincial team tested us was actually quite ingenious they would rank us Uh, every time we went to a provincial team camp. So Mission would have been the first one, but then there was one in Winfield. There was, you know, this is out in BC, of course. Um, But there there were seven or eight of them. And every time we went in, they would test us. So they would rank us from one to, well, 45 or 50 when we started to one in 15 or so when we were trying to get down to the last stages of selecting a 10 man Canada games team. And, and that was a, that was an ego hit because if you were the 15th guy, you didn't want to be there. Um, and, and sometimes that was tough, uh, on, on me for sure when I was like the 15th guy. Um, but once you get up to the seventh or eighth guy or get up to five, which is as high as I ever got, you feel like you've gone from 15 to five and that's good. Um, the question is, how does the person who is now in 15th spot feel? Well, the other part of the goal setting piece or the, or the testing piece that was so brilliant was the coaches also tested us in terms of our improvement from camp to, camp to camp to camp to camp. And so you could be hypothetically the 15th ranked player, but you could also feel good about yourself at the same time Because the coaches would be saying, yeah, they're the 15th ranked player, but they're also improving faster than anybody else in this area and this area. So you always had something that you could feel good about yourself um, doing. Um, I guess the other part, the other two parts in answer to your question is that that centimeter card didn't go away in one day. It went away in six months. So every day you're you're trying you're jumping and trying to get the next centimeter up. So basically, that centimeter card was I jump as high as I could with chalk fingers, reach as high as I could on a post, and then get up there on a ladder and extend the bottom of the centimeter card to the ch- to the uh, to the top of the chalk smudge. So it extended upwards. So every day you're looking at a, a next centimeter up. Uh, When I reached that, it was sort of hallelujah, my training's paying off. And now I'm gonna get up there, I'm gonna cut the centimeter off. And then back in those days when there was no email or anything, I'd put it in an envelope and I'd send it down to my provincial coordinator and say, look what I've done. And he'd go, well, geez, I I guess Graham is uh, adhering to his provincial jump training program because he's going up. And uh, that was fun because um, it kept things interesting. Every day, the, the, next, the next centimeter up was a realistic, challenging, personal improvement goal about, you know, whether or not you were getting a little bit better. Didn't happen every day, but it happened often enough that you were hopeful every day. Um, I guess the, 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 the other thing that was really important is I had a guy on the, um, the provincial team program who is at that time trying to figure out life and trying to figure out life as a young volleyball player, just like I was. So we decided to train pretty hard and do the extras. And so we compared notes all the time. So it was almost like each of us had an accountability check for the hard work that we were trying to do and the extras that we were trying to do to, to, to improve real people in and be the best we could be.
0: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. and Yeah, I love that kind of analogy and situation you said where it was just about getting, you know, that one inch, that one centimeter uh, or that 1% better each day. Right, and over that sustained period of time, of course, right from your own experience, look at the results you got and how that affected your performance over, you know, the long term. And I see so many athletes, especially at the youth ages, and right, they have dreams to go pro one day or you know be that starter on their team, win that championship. Um, But then when it comes to actually putting in the work. Right, that's what makes all the difference. And you know, one thing I really think that uh, helps me and it helped me when I played, especially at the college levels, was just that mindset of getting one percent better each day. Right, that's all it took. Is if I'm getting one percent better each day, I'm moving forward. That's progress. And right over a sustained period of time, that's where you start getting the results you want and seeing those ma- massive uh, you know changes and growth, especially in your performance. Um, so I guess relating to that, you know, how did that make you feel when you started getting the results you wanted and, you know, made those Olympic roster teams?
1: Well, it, it made me hopeful, um, because, uh, I, I went through, uh, five or six camps, um, you know, that were, that had 160 kids in them at the start to, you know, maybe 80 kids, the second camp, uh, 40 kids, the third camp, and it just went on and on. And uh, this culminated in a, in a selection process to a team called the Pacific Rim Championship Team, which was a BC team that was going over to Hawaii, which wasn't a bad gig at the time, uh, to play against other Pacific Rim nations like Korea and Japan, and the United States. Um, and uh, I was the last player chosen. I, I know I was the last player chosen, even though no one told me that um squeaked in by the skin of my teeth and uh you know i I often wonder where life would have gone if i had been uh uh, a player who was cut, as opposed to the last player chosen you know would i have uh taken up something else would i have continued to pitch those sorts of things um but uh, um it it made me feel hopeful in 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 a in a word Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so after your experience, you know competing at those high levels. Now that, of course, you've been coaching for how many years? What were the biggest lessons you learned throughout that process? And I guess just in hindsight, what do you realize that you wish you knew back when you played at those, uh, you know, youth or younger levels in in your days? Yeah, um, I mean that's a
1: that's a that's a big thing. Uh, you know, uh, the accountability check piece was, was, a, was a huge thing, Zach. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, I'm mentioning this again, but, you know, the, the, the guy I, I worked out with virtually, he was in Williams Lake, I was in Comox, so we didn't really work out together, but we sort of compared notes. That became a real theme for, for um, uh, my management of, of, in this case, university volleyball teams and provincial team volleyball teams. Uh, When I, when I began coaching at at a more elite level and um, one of the things that we did in accordance with this, this partnership I had with this guy in Williams Lake was that we paired, we paired players up and we paired players based on, uh, you know, their affinity for one another might've been a friendship um, uh, where they had come from initially, if they came from the same place, for example, Um, and uh, they worked out together um you know with our provincial team uh that won canada games in 1987 um we had six players from yorkton so it was pretty easy to pair three pairs of, of guys up and they would work out at a certain place in a certain time that worked for both of their schedules and they were there to help feather the last couple of reps up when you couldn't do it yourself and uh um just provide an accountability check for, you. Yeah, you're here with me. If you don't show up, I'm disappointed because you're compromising my workout. Um, we can help each other's workout by being there. Um, and so uh, that became a real, a real theme um, for, uh, uh, I guess, developing um, the extras in in especially in developmental teams that were 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 highly trainable at 16, 17, 18 years old, that sort of thing. Um, I think the other thing was was probably um, you know, we spend so much time in the technical, tactical, and physical aspects of our sport. We go to practice and we develop those. Um, we we may even in a weak moment go into a gym and, and pump some weights because we think that's going to help us. So those three areas are areas that we, we, uh, we generally do as a, as a function of being part of an elite athletic group. Um, the sports psychology or um, psychological skills training part of it um, may or may not be there. And uh, I guess one of the things I'm here to say is that if we have a bad mental game, it can torpedo or short circuit all of the technical, tactical and physical work that we've done in order to try to play our best and may, in fact, prevent us from playing our best if our mental game is not where it should be. The, the, the corollary, the positive is that if we have a great mental game and we're our own best mental trainer. Uh, then we can go out and unleash the considerable technical tactical and physical work that we have put in, in and around the gym or in and around the ice, whatever the venue may be. Um, so uh, back when I started, there weren't very many people, weren't very many resources that could help you understand how you, how you, how you were to prepare consistently to, to unleash those that, that work that you had done. And um, I can remember, um, we were playing the United States in the Winnipeg Convention Center, uh, and we'd never beaten these guys before. Uh, but we knew we had the team to do it. And, uh, I can remember we had an eight o'clock game with them. I'm at, I'm sitting there at 12 noon in my house in Winnipeg and I can't sit still. Um, you know, I'd read a magazine, I'd cross the room and read another one for 30 seconds, cook, cook spaghetti, bake cookies, things I never did because I needed something to do. I had to be doing something. I couldn't sit still. So I was edgy. I couldn't wait for the game to start. Here it was 12 noon. Um, the game's at eight. And I'm asking myself, why can't we start at two or three o'clock in the afternoon? Like, let's get on with it. Uh, so I was anticipatory. I was anticipating the event. And thirdly, I put in the extras and I felt like I, I had done the work to, to perform well against the states, assuming I got myself in a good space to, to play. Um, so edgy, anticipatory, and confident were, were probably words that would describe how I felt before that game. And then the game started. And every athlete who's been through a, a career-type game will um, be able to identify with this. I couldn't remember the 5,000 people in the stands. I couldn't remember the score at any given time. I couldn't remember talking to my teammates on the court, even though I know I did. I couldn't remember anything my coach told me in timeouts, which may be a bit maladaptive, but that's how absorbed I was in the process. And the US was just this faceless blur of red, white, and blue on the other side of the net. So it was just me in a volleyball that night. And I got out of my own way and I allowed all that technical, tactical, and physical preparation that I'd done. To be celebrated in that game. I got out of the end of the game. Um, We were out there for two and a quarter hours. It seemed like we were out there for 45 minutes. It just slipped by. And uh, uh, I said, man, I I was good tonight. And someone had mentioned to me um, at some point how you feel before you play has an awful lot to do with how you play. And I really thought about it after the match. And my question to myself was if. If I have to be edgy, anticipatory, and confident to be able to pull off a performance like this, and if I'm interested in doing it again and again and again, why in the world wouldn't I want to feel edgy, anticipatory, and confident before every match for the rest of my life? And that's when um, what they call an ideal performance state or a pre-competitive target became a target for me and uh you know if i have the target i'm a little bit too high i can bring myself down if i feel like i've crawled out of bed in the morning and i need to go up well i can uh, i can visualize some things that can get me closer to how i need to feel to give me myself the best chance to pull off a career or at least an excellent or at the very least a satisfactory performance so what ends up happening is you end up um having the highs, which happen 25% of the time, those career type performances, but where normally you'd get deep valleys where a coach or a teammate would not even be able to recognize you. And instead, because of the, the, the homework that you do, you've got those high points, but then those valleys are very shallow. So what you're left with at the very lowest level is a satisfactory performance. You never get those big dips. And, um, that lesson became a huge lesson for me like a life lesson for me in terms of how to get consistently prepared so that your performance that follows is also consistently good if not excellent so sure. those were some those were some lessons but you had to figure that out back in the day on your own uh nowadays there's um guys like yourself um there's uh there's there's resources um there's uh old guys like me that uh, um, can uh, can can help people, uh, um, you know, maybe discover that when they're 16 or 17 or 18 or or 12 or 13. In the case of some of the kids I work with, instead of waiting until they were 20 or 21. And, um, and finding this out through trial and error.
0: For sure, for sure. And those are some great points, Tom, especially relating to, you know, that difference between the mental aspect and the physical aspect. And I feel like, you know, from my own experience as well, and I'm sure you can relate, is back then, right, most athletes only focus on the physical aspect of things. And right, you know, getting into the gym, putting the reps in, right, um, going to your practices. But when you talk about the highs and lows, especially relating to performance, right, whether that's in your sport, um, you know, in studies or just life itself, If we can't manage, right, those ups and downs and stay consistent with them, it'll become very challenging, especially to get the results you want, but then staying positive throughout that, right? Because I'm sure you can relate, especially competing at those high levels, thinking about, you know, how much pressure, stress, and, you know, standards you had to perform at those levels and how it could affect you, right? You know, like you said, that one day you're super you know, jacked up ready for the game. Um, but yeah, you know, vice versa, some athletes are not prepared, or they're not excited or motivated for the game. And yeah, it's just interesting how the I guess, factors of performance can be dictated, especially over the sustained period of time. And yeah, I'm, you know, a lot of the kind of lessons you said and things you realized, I feel like so many athletes, if they focused on when they're younger, and that's something myself, I wish I would have you know, hired a coach to help me with my mental game, you know, just help me stay prepared, help me to stay in it um, and help me stay positive at the end of the day, because I'm sure you can relate that the grind and student athlete lifestyle is not easy, right? There's challenge after challenge, failure after failure. But I feel like if, yeah, we can utilize both sides of the game, the physical and mental aspect, that's when you're going to start getting the results you want and truly start reaching your highest potential as an athlete. So I want to ask you now, Tom, what do you think separates elite athletes from average athletes? Do you think it's more physical side of things, more mental side of things from your experience um, and athletes you've worked with? What can you say or identify that separates, you know, an elite performer from just an average athlete or performer?
1: Well, uh, I, I think there's probably three things, so I'm, I'm just writing a few of them down right now, but, uh, I think, I think, uh, one is you have to be able to, you have to be willing to do the extras. Um, you, you, there's too many people to pass that are initially better than we are, um, for us to expect to be elite if we don't do those things. Um, and uh, what we usually do with athletes that are looking for um, areas to improve in is there may be five or six or seven of them, but we ask them to identify a mission-critical area that has room for improvement, and to do that, we usually do it through a page one and a page two, so we'll just, we'll just ask them to list the, the components or the mission-critical demands of their sport on page one, and then on page two, we'll ask them to prioritize what's on page one on page two, from most important to, to least important. And we'll usually, we usually say, uh, does it make sense uh, to tackle priority one and priority two on page two? And what, most of the time the answer is yes, because we can, we can spend a lot of time doing extras in the service of areas that we're already strong at. So let's say this is our performance ceiling and we're already up here. We can spend an awful lot of time hammering away at that that mission critical skill area and not see the gains that we would if we take something that's down here and has room to improve to reach its, its, its performance ceiling. And so if you're asking the question, how can I get better fastest? And where does my soap, source of hope come from? Um, it's probably in the areas that are one, mission critical. We need them. They have to be a part of what we do. And two, they have room for improvement so that we, we can get better uh, fastest. Uh, or at least as as fast as possible, and faster than if we if we're doing the fun stuff and training our mission critical strengths. So that that's one thing. Um, I, I think the other thing is how you how you behave on a court, on the ice, um, on the field, uh, whatever your performance venue happens to be. Um, talk to people about what a great athlete looks like um i mean the biggest compliment i ever got as a as a as a university athlete after i finished playing national team was uh, a guy from york university named wally Dyb, a wonderful man volleyball coach uh we were in a tournament in winnipeg and uh he uh, took me aside afterwards and he said, I got this guy who's coming up. And I, uh, we sat and watched the match. He said, this is what, uh, this is what, uh, an excellent volleyball player looks like. And, uh, it's just a compliment that came from a coach. Um, you know, um, that compliment would be paid to any number of people over the millennia that sport has been, been, uh, been in existence, but, um, you need, you need to do the extras to make yourself look uh, like uh, uh, a a superior athlete in your chosen sport. I think a lot of that has to do with, um, it has to do with uh, your pre-competitive preparation, uh, which we've talked about a little bit. I mean, when you have uh, a career competition Do the the biggest favor you can do for yourself. While things are still fresh in your mind after it's over, grab a piece of paper and a pencil from your coach. and While things are fresh in your mind, write down two or three descriptive words that capture how you felt before you played. Because ideal performance states or whatever you want to call them, don't change very much over the course of an athlete's career. They're quite stable. Once you capture it, it's probably there as a target for you for the rest of your, your competitive life and uh, you can try and get there. Uh, 10 minutes in the morning, five minutes when you get to the dressing room before you put on your pads or whatever, we'll do it. Uh, that's all it takes, it's all, all, all the homework that is necessary to, to, to probably get yourself pretty close to your ideal performance state on any given day. Um, you know, So that's pre-competitive, but I think, I think within competition is the other piece and uh, in, in sports like my own, uh, in sports like tennis, um, where uh, they're either individual or team sports, but they're separated by serves. And there's, there's time between serves. How you use that time between serves, for example, um, predicts an awful lot about how you behave on a volleyball court and the hope that you have and the the visualization of the opportunity that's in front of you so if i've had a temporary setback if i've already decided before the match starts how i'm going to go at the challenge that's in front of me um you know uh i'll give you an example in a minute but if that's happened that's exactly what you visualize in between serves and it gives you a strategy, it gives you hope, it gives you something you could do about the situation to try and impose your will upon who the unfortunate competition happens to be. So you think about a, um, uh, you know, a, a soccer defender um, who's just seen video of, uh, of, of a game and they've, they've got to mark um, uh, a striker who has just scored three goals in their previous game. I mean the initial the initial um, feeling is uh, this this person could light me up so there's worry there's concern there's doubt uh, that's always going to it's it's going to be a part of of our pre-competitive mix unless we decide uh, about something we can do about it and so on 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 a second look with a coach or whatever at the video we realize that the striker has scored. All three goals moving to their right off their right boot. Hmm. What's our strategy? It's pretty simple. We overplay them to their right side and we see how they're going to do with plan B going to their left. In other words, we're short circuiting plan A and we're making them go to something they're less comfortable with, or at least we think they might be less comfortable with. As Hmm. soon as that what can we do question is answered, our confidence goes up our hopefulness goes up and our worry, our concern, and our doubt goes down.
0: Those are some great points, Tom, especially, yeah, relating to that confidence aspect and, you know, how you feel and perform in the moment. Um, What were some, I guess, just key things that you did specifically uh, that allowed you to prepare for the game beforehand? We talked a bit about, you know, that preparation um, and getting prepared, you know, before the game or, you know, uh, kind of analyzing how we played after what were specific things you did before to uh, help prepare to allow yourself to reach your highest potential
1: okay that sounds good uh well the 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 um mental relaxation that i just went through where you identify something that's bothering you it's a source of worry concern or doubt and then ask yourself what you can do about it i.e the soccer player example for example mm-hmm. um was uh, was a big part of it because i had to go in uh to each competition feeling some level of confidence in order to be able to sort of celebrate my preparation for that for the for the for the event but I, I went through, it took me a while to figure this out because um, I had uh, a penchant for playing down to my competition. So if we were favored uh, as, a, as a university or a national team, um, I sometimes gave myself permission to play down to whoever we were favored against. Uh, you know, we have some wiggle room. You can afford not to play your best and probably still survive. And uh, I bought into that hook, line, and sinker. Uh, for the early part of my my career um uh, until i got tired of it and uh then there were a couple of things that uh i made sure that i did one was uh i i by that time knew what my ideal performance state was and i would get up in the morning and i would spend 10 minutes talking myself into my ideal performance state and then I'd let the rest of the day go i might go to university um i might uh i might do great in an exam I might uh, do poorly in an exam I might have a disagreement with a friend I might have a a great time with a friend um, in a a conversation Um, those are circumstances of the day but I found that if I if I dedicated 10 minutes right after breakfast to my day then I've symbolically devoted the rest of the day to what's going to happen at eight o'clock at night or seven o'clock at night whenever we play so the circumstances of the day just sort of roll like water off a duck's back and you're, uh, you're, you're ready to play for having prepared well in advance. So preparing well in advance was a big deal for me, but just for 10 minutes, right? And then I could go forward with a confidence. So when I got to the gym, I'd spend five more minutes just making sure I was, I, I had tweaked my ideal performance state and I was close to it and then I could proceed with my warm up and confidence. The other thing was that I had to get myself more invested and more interested in playing uh, because I would play down to the, 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 the competition sometimes. We had great teams at university. We won a couple of national championships. So, habitually, we are playing against teams that were, were worse than us. So, this was an occupational hazard. And I found that every athlete has a switch. And mine was, mine was this – uh, I had to make it personal in order to get interested enough to play my best. So here's what I did. I'm not proud of this coping strategy, but it was my coping strategy. It was my switch, flip my switch. I go into the gym, and I'd sit on the top floor of the bleachers um, before anybody else got there. And then I watch the opposition come in, and I'd pick out one guy, and I'd say, what gives you the right to be here with me for the next two and a quarter hours? pretty cocky right but you know where i'm going i have to make it personal in order for me then to to look at the strategies what i plan to do against the guy and to give that teeth right Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right and i found that that was really easy to get myself excited about making it personal and then exercising the strategies that i wanted to employ to give myself the best chance to to be successful against them but i had to get interested first Everybody, I think, has a switch and you just have to, you just have to find it based on what your, your needs are. Um, you know, goalies in, in hockey, uh, will, will, uh, get themselves more excited by, um, by just rehearsing the idea that they need to play their opposite number. The other goalie at the other end of the ring, uh, shutting down the, um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the opposing team's best score, uh, the effort and uh, conviction and um, activity it takes to clear their crease, you know, different things like that. Those are all active sorts of things that uh, can get a person more um, involved personally in their endeavor and more excited as a result about the game that's in front of them. So those were, I mean, those, those, pieces, um, making sure I was close to my ideal performance state, uh, and then um, making sure I was I was excited enough if my ideal performance state was here and I was feeling like I just crawled out of the rack in the morning, I needed to get up here. Those were active sorts of uh, uh, strategies that I used to try and get myself ready to play. Um, every athlete will have theirs um if you're too excited to play you need to come down that's where the mental relaxation such as the soccer example would become um more important than perhaps the act perhaps the act of visualization that gets us is intended to get us more excited when that's needed
0: so gotcha yeah no those are some great uh tips tricks kind of strategies especially relating to, like you said, that performance state and how we can bounce, right. If we need to level up or we need to come down in that situation. Um, yeah. And especially, right. It's all going to depend on the day that things happen, right. Cause I feel like there's so many factors that influence your performance and especially how you feel, right. You know, something could have happened that night before and you got a big game the next day, right. If your mind's only focusing on right, what happened, um, or that negative circumstance, let's say, you know how is that going to affect your performance? Are you going to be feeling low? Are you going to be feeling jacked up or high? Um, yeah, and I feel like that's so key, especially to have that balance so you can perform at your optimal state and of course get the results you want. So I just want to take a second now to pivot a little bit um, and transition to the perspective from the parent. And as someone who's you know had uh, high-performing athletes and parents of high-performing athletes, what is your advice now to parents um you know who have athletes and what can they do to put them in a better position for success over the long term mm-hmm. yeah i uh, i think
1: that's a, a really good question uh one is to to be there um when your athletes are developing so um you know that may you don't want to determine which sport your kids uh, play because you happen to play them. But uh, if uh, if you've got any skills at all, and this maybe gets back to the John Smoltz piece in his Hall of Fame uh, speech uh, about playing everything that's in season for a while until you uh, until you choose uh, one or two that are, are priorities for you, uh, you'll develop some skills that are transferable to your kids. Um, my daughter, um, I took her to a volleyball practice once. she absolutely hated it. And she decided to take up rowing Well, my wife was a rower and uh, they, they talked a lot more about sports than I did uh, because of the, the rowing media. Uh, my boys were, uh, were, uh, were volleyball players and uh, they simply wanted to be, it took them to a practice. They loved it. And so we continued. But, uh, you know, my youngest son, Emmett, was a baseball player, too. And so uh, I coached that. Uh, but whether or not you feel like you have the ability to coach uh, a sport, there'll be something that you can draw from your experience that will uh, allow you to be there for your kids. Uh, I was a subpar basketball player in, uh, when, I went, when I played everything through, through high school. But uh, I'm perfectly capable of playing one-on-one with my kid in the driveway. I'm perfectly capable of making sure there's a basket at each end of the driveway and inviting the neighbors in for pickup games, if my kid loves basketball, which they all seem to do. And, uh, you know, we used to get parents that were in that didn't matter whether these kids were five or eight or 15, they were going to play as hard as they possibly could as parents to win. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe that's a little maladaptive, but in the end, your kids learn something from everybody they run into. Um, and uh, so be there in any, any way that you possibly can. Uh, be positive because the main thing is your kids have to have a love of the sport. Um, that's important. Go out and do the extras with them. Smile at the wild pitches that you throw when you're learning a curveball and uh, and say great job when uh, when they hit the mitt uh, but uh, be positive and I think we've uh, we've all seen that commercial on tv right now where the guy's yelling at his kid in the back seat about the worst game he thinks he's ever seen his kid play in his life and uh, the corollary is we can uh, we can uh, help our kids uh, explore um, the, the, the the love of sport if we're if we're positive with them um find someone who can teach them how to prepare consistently. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, we've talked about that quite a bit. And I think the other thing, Zach, is probably um, holistically, uh, what can our kids do to make sure that they are, they have more than one domain in their life beyond sport? Okay, so, I mean, if you look at some of the, some of the uh, the First Nations and Indigenous examples of of uh, of wellness. Uh, there will be a number of different areas that converge, and if a kid has uh, pieces of that in their life, they're likely to be fairly uh, fairly fairly well adjusted. Um, um, you know, it's like the the stock market. If uh, I've got if this and this and this and this and this, and this are, in, are in pretty good shape and one of my areas in my life takes a dip. Every once in a while, I've still got those other four or five areas that are in good shape, and they help keep me buoyant emotionally. Um, You only got one area, you only got one area, and it's easily the most important area of your life, and it goes south, what is there to hold us up emotionally?
0: Right, and I feel like you know, my experience as an athlete, I feel like that's why it's so important, especially at the youth stages, to be a multi-sport athlete. You know, even if you're only good in one sport, that doesn't matter. You know, competing in the, the multiple different sports gives you those different insights, those different perspectives and abilities to, yeah, right, go on and um, essentially do what you want to do, right? So if football isn't your thing, but you really enjoy hockey, right? I'm sure a lot of those skills, you know, let's say from football transfer over that you can utilize, um, that could help you, right. Reach your potential and what you want to do. but the biggest thing I kind of realized, and this was in hindsight as well to when I played is back to that point of, you know, kind of enjoying what you're doing, right. Having fun with the game and being passionate about it. And I realized if I wasn't a hundred percent passionate about something, I wasn't going to put a hundred percent effort into it. And that was kind of just a, a big mindset shift for me, because when I realized that, I look back to every point in my life, whether it be in school, whether it be in sports, just life itself. And I realized that when I wasn't passionate about something, when I really didn't care about it, of course, I never put the effort into it. right? And I feel like so many athletes, and relating back to that point of, you know parents and parents and athletes, is, um you know, of course, parents want their their son or daughter to succeed. Um, you don't do all they can, whether it's in sports, uh, you know, let's say music, whatever dance, whatever it may be. Um, but putting them in those different situations can give them so many more skills. Um, and I guess just perspectives to help them within all aspects of life. And I feel like that's the greatest thing is, you know, my experience playing football. Sure. I learned a lot of the physical skills, right? Abilities football was awesome. But the biggest thing I learned from football was that. You know, sports, especially relating to that aspect is we're a family, right? We're all brothers here. We're all sisters here, whatever it may be. And that, I guess, trait and that kind of lesson was a huge learning experience for me, especially later on in life, realizing that, yeah, we're all here for a common purpose. We all want to achieve this common goal, right? We want to win that championship. We want to do the best we can do is... I'm going to do whatever it takes to help you. And you're going to do whatever it takes to help me, right? And when you have that team chemistry, that's when I feel like you can truly achieve great results. And it showed. I remember playing football is when we had that team chemistry, um, you know, we were all in and we succeeded. And we started reaching a higher potential that we could have ever thought. But just learning those life lessons in the process, I feel like it's so, so important, even beyond just the sport itself right? And when you can learn those strategies, let's say even just time management, if you can learn how to manage your time within sports, uh, you know, that carries over to your studies as well. You know, especially you go to the collegiate levels, you got to manage a heavy workload. And then in the future, you have a job, right? You have those time management skills throughout the entire process. And I feel like that's why it's so important, especially to work on that mental aspect is because at the end of the day, you know, if you're not playing sports anymore, again, back to the point of what do you have? Right. What are you passionate about? And yeah, I feel like it's so important just to have those numerous different skills that can apply in all aspects of life rather than just within a sport and what you can do within that sport. Um, was there anything you wanted to, to kind of add on to that? That was just kind of some some things I had and just kind of from my own experience relating back to when I played.
1: No, I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, I think the, uh, the domains of life are, are huge, um, and they're a real secret to remaining uh, emotionally buoyant. Uh, you know, a, a kid that's going to school, let's say it's high school, or let's say it's university. Um, you know, I'll take an example, a personal example. Um, you know, when I, when I started going to university, um, I was in phys ed for a week. kinesiology for a week and i was interested in it i wanted to teach it uh etc but i'd only taken half of my fitness test and i thought we had uh uh, an agreement that i was you know i was working nine working out nine hours a day with the with a provincial team up in up in the okanagan at the time i wasn't around for the second half and i thought we'd had an agreement that uh you know i was in decent enough shape to gain entrance into the college of kinesiology at the university of victoria i was in for a week and then they kicked me out they said i hadn't done my my my, my second fitness test and uh, so i ended up in arts and science and uh, i wasn't committed to it i was an elite athlete but i was a c-plus student because i i didn't know where it was going i didn't know what the market was at the end of that uh, academic trajectory from a vocational point of view. And uh, I didn't know what the job was gonna look like that I'd be, I'd be qualified for. Uh, you know. Uh, and then I went and did a master's degree in something I was quite interested and in, invested in that I thought would, uh, would result in a, in, a, in a fulfilling job moving forward. And I magically became a straight A student. So we're not dumb or we're not smart sometimes. It's a matter of what we're committed to. And how much we're committed—that kind of um, um, ends up um, eliciting whatever we're capable of. So I'm a big fan of, uh, in the interest of expanding those domains for for high school and university athletes, um, go through some aptitude testing. I mean, your mom is a is an excellent high school counselor, right? You can you can access as a high school athlete some aptitude and some count uh, testing and some career counseling when you're a grade 11 or 12 student Uh, as a university athlete you can go to uh, you can go uh, to, uh, to to somewhere at a university and you can access career counseling aptitude testing in the same manner. So the idea is if you can come up with four or five options that meet your aptitude and two are in, your are, are of interest to you and three have a market associated with them now you can make an educated choice on which of those do i think i really want to go after and mm. if you can do that then you can decide on which course of study and in which institution you're going to go to in order to reach that goal that is now meaningful to you and you too will magically go up a grade and a half for identifying something that you're actually committed to, as opposed to something that you're just there doing because you happen to be an athlete. So you become a student athlete at that point. And I think it's something that, uh, that, that, well, it's something I encourage every, every high school and, and, uh, and university athlete to do, uh, hopefully fairly early in their experience at whatever institution they happen to be at.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are some great points for sure, especially for those athletes that want to move on, right, and have dreams someday to make it to the professional levels, or even just compete at the collegiate levels. Um, yeah, it's so important, especially just to have those different skills and those different perspectives to, yeah, exactly, not only help you within your sport, but help you within all aspects of life. And I feel like that's the biggest thing, right? Those are the biggest lessons, is if you can apply them in all aspects of life, right, That those are the biggest wins. Um, And I feel like that can have such a big impact, you know, just the way you feel, your confidence, your abilities, and yeah, what you want to be able to do in life. Um, I want to ask you now, you know, from your experience and what you've kind of been through as an athlete, as a coach, what are some of the biggest misconceptions or myths that you find within the sports world or just relating to student athletes in general?
1: Uh, I think one of them is, uh, one of them is uh to our to the point we just finished this this idea that you uh athletics and and academics um conspire to produce a situation where you can't be as good at either because you're involved in both i don't know whether that makes any sense so getting back to your point about time management if you've got two Uh, Domains of life that are really important academics and athletics, and you happen to be at a a high school or university that demands both. Um, Do they do they compromise one another, because they take time, each of them takes time and there's not as much time to throw into either athletics or academics or do they actually unleash each other? And I think in some cases they actually unleash each other because we know we have a minimum amount of time to, 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 to devote to both. But if we've gone through the process that we, we just talked about, about identifying a road that you're committed to in academics, I think athletics and academics Uh, can unleash each other in an academic situation. So never be convinced that they're going to torpedo each other just because both take time. Um, The other thing, I think the other misconception in, in, in athletics and in mental preparation specifically, is that you have to be through a capstone competition in order to succeed at one. So everybody says you have to go through an Olympics before you can actually go ahead and, and succeed at it your second time around. And there's this little thing called um, competitive simulation now, or uh, I use a model called uh, cognitive affective stress management training, and it's um, it's a, a four stage process where you 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 work with the athlete and their coaches about around identifying the the what makes this competition special uh, or more special specifically than a, say an early season workout or uh, a, an intermediate competition that is eventually leading up to this capstone. And um, the idea is to visualize everything about that top level competition that makes it remarkable, that makes it different that makes it sometimes a, a bit of a bit anxiety inducing uh in order for us to get used to that. Um, so we use this typically at the beginning of the season for for team athletes or or for individual athletes. Um, because what often happens is an athlete will say, I, I think this provincials or this nationals or this world championship or Olympics or uh, uh, Indigenous games at the end of the year has the potential to make me feel more uncomfortable than I'm used to. But, you know, I'm not going to worry about that. Now just hope it doesn't happen when the time comes. So we do nothing. And, of course, when the time comes and we recognize the scope of the thing, we go, holy crap, you know, uh, this is more than I thought it was. I'm uncomfortable in my own skin here. So what we try to do is we try to induce the emotion that will be part of that, the situation and the emotions that will be a part of that capstone competition early in the year. And we'll maybe dedicate, um, we'll go through that process before an early season practice, then a later season practice, then an early season event, maybe a, 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 a mid-season event. It's a little more important, a little more close or a little closer to the capstone competition. And what we're doing is we're using that process to um, successfully successively approximate what's going to happen at the end of the year um, the other stages in in um, competitive simulation or, or stress management training that i use is there's no point in inducing a bunch of emotion that's going to make the athlete feel uncomfortable if we can't do anything about, about it so we'll uh we'll pair the the induction of emotion in stage one with the mental relaxation, physical relaxation, just rhythmic breathing and different sort of uh, sorts of breathing exercises and things like that. And then positive visualization uh, around what you have to do to succeed in this situation with the induced emotion in stage one. So stage one is about inducing emotion. Stage two, three, and four are about managing it or turning it off. And in the process, hopefully you get a little bit Um, you're a little bit better prepared for dealing with an incredibly important competition that uh, can rear its ugly head at the end of the year if you're not prepared. Now, this way, I think you are. And I think it's a source of uh, of confidence for the athletes. So that's another misconception is that you have to be at a top level competition once before you can go ahead and do it the second time. You can do it the first time. It just, Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of how you prepare.
0: Yeah, no, those are great points. and I I agree 100%, especially relating to that training aspect of most athletes, especially at the youth stages, right? I feel like even the high school level is they just go into the game, right? They'll go to their practices, but then they go into the game, um, either expecting to play at 100% or just going in there, right? not really expecting anything. So I feel like that side of the training, you know, I relate it to, or I kind of call it chaos training with our athletes is putting them in those situations, right? Those uncomfortable or stressful situations that allow them to start adapting and start getting more comfortable, right? So that when those situations or those things happen in a real live game, it becomes automatic, right? And I just like to think of it as a muscle. You know, if you want to grow, you want to get bigger, you want to get stronger, right? You got to lift weights. But in that process, what are you actually doing, right? You're hurting yourself, you're pushing yourself to failure, and you come back stronger. So I just think about it in that exact same sense, is if we can, you know, put ourselves in those situations that allow us to step outside of our comfort zone, that's when we're going to start getting the results we want. And of course, the key there is, you know, with many athletes, and most people in general, is just that ability to step outside of their comfort zones, right? Because we have these fears, we have these anxieties, these worries, of, you know, what might happen if we do, or what will people think of us if we step outside of our comfort zone and do something different. And I feel like that is so, so important, especially relating to a training side of things is preparing yourself for those situations that might not happen right? Um, You know, those crazy hectic situations where it's at the end of the game, right? And you have nothing left in the tank, but you got to give it your all and you got to prepare yourself for those situations that could happen, right? And I feel like at the end of the day, that's what makes all the difference is if you can make those tough plays, if you can make those, you know, challenging situations uh, and create positive outcomes, That's when you're going to start seeing massive results and changes compared to just focusing on the basics, right? The basic plays, uh, the basic situations that might happen is sure, those might be the most common, but again, when it comes down to it, that championship game, right? Going to that championship game and seeing that unique situation is if we can't handle it, then it'll be very tough to get the results we want. Right. So just kind of relating back to that training aspect, I again, I couldn't agree with you more like more on that aspect. And I feel like so many more athletes really need to focus on that side of things, um, to get the results they want, because if they can't handle those pressures, those stresses, you know, those failures in that situation, then it becomes very hard, right. To continue forward and keep getting the results you want. Um, But yeah, I guess, you know, I just want to ask you one last question, Tom. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us today is what is one specific thing? I know you've given us so much value and information here already, but what is one specific thing that you would suggest for other athletes to reach their highest potential and performance? Um, You know, whether that's in their sports studies or just life itself. Well,
1: That's a good question. One thing Uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of some of the things that we've talked about and how we would generalize that. I I think the biggest thing would probably be develop, um, develop an accountability check for, for yourself um, in, in every area you're involved in, in, in school or or sport. Um, You know, it could be a guy, a guy, or a young lady that you're working out with. Uh, depending on on uh, on you know what type of team you're involved and in, who your who your teammates are, um, it uh, it could be um, you know whittling that page one and page two down to a couple of priorities that you become committed to. Um, And I think that I think that I think those sorts of things are valuable, because ultimately, we're responsible for describing ourselves and where we want to go and what we're what we're a fit for. So describing those mission critical limitations to us that we want to go after is something that we describe to ourselves. Right. Our ideal performance state is something that we describe to ourselves through our experience. We have a great performance, we get a piece of paper, we write, we write down how we felt before, and that predicts our accountability to try and get there again and again and again. Uh, you know, what sort of vocation you wanna be involved in. Um, that may be done with the help of a, a school counselor or a service that a school counselor recommends uh same can be said about the university experience if you haven't done this in high school um you know the it, it can be done in concert with other people that will help you along coaches uh, professionals that can provide advice but ultimately you've sought that advice and so once the advice comes down the the, the pipe you're committed to it because you've been part of the decision making process so mm-hmm don't let anybody else decide what your path in life is going to look like be involved in it yourself and then follow your gut. because where you want to end up pre-competition what strategies you want to use in competition between serves or between plays where you want to go to vocationally um all of those things um are things that we're involved in deciding ourselves. Um, We're our own best goal setters. We're our own best mental preparers if we have the skills to do it or if we access the skills from other people to help us do that and identify avenues which are priorities for us to travel. And the, um, the trail will become much more satisfying if we have a hand in our own goal setting process and we'll be much more committed to every, every trail that we take towards our final destination if we have a hand in the goal setting processes that are part of that. So I guess I that, would, that would probably be off the top of my head without thinking about it too much that would probably be my best advice.
0: I love it. That's awesome. Great advice. And yeah, I hope whoever is listening can take that advice and start to apply it within their life and start getting the results they want to truly reach their highest potential, uh, whether it be in sports or out. Uh, So I want to thank you again, Tom, for taking the time to join us today and share your insight and the knowledge in helping all athletes and parents be able to navigate the grind and student athlete lifestyle. So I want to, yeah, just thank you again for sitting down with us and taking the time to share uh, all the knowledge and value you can provide uh, for others.
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Zach, it's it's uh, been a pleasure and uh, thank you for asking. You've been uh, an important part of my life, too, because you were a teammate of my son's. I got to work with you a little bit uh, in, uh, in various areas, and uh, I think what you're doing is terrific. So keep up the good
0: work. I appreciate the words Tom and I'll continue to do whatever I can to help others who are in my position and yeah, continue to strive to be the best. Fantastic. Awesome. So I want to thank you again for tuning into the grind road to success podcast, and we will see you on the next one. Cheers.